Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Nelicandra R.S., author of South vs. North. And you can pronounce your name for me if I pronounced it wrong. Nila Conton. Nila Conton. Thank you. I wonder if you could start off by telling the audience something about yourself and how you got started on this book about India. Sure. Um, so I am a data scientist uh, by training and trade. Uh, you know, I, I studied uh, uh, computer engineering as an, uh, you know, I, I went to Clemson University, studied computer engineering, and I've been working uh, as a data scientist uh, on uh, for about, you know, uh, close to two decades now. So, so, and because I am sort of, you know, I, I do what I do for a living, uh, and I happen to live in India at the moment, uh, uh, back in 2011, we had um, elections to my state uh, assembly. Uh, and, uh, you know, I... As data scientists do, what I did was I calculated the probability of an individual voter impacting the elections, right? Um, and and when I did that, uh, as you can imagine, it's a very small number. Uh, so what I did was I compared and contrasted the power of a voter in my constituency versus one in uh, somewhere in northern India, and I found out that voters in southern India, particularly in my home state, were much more quote unquote powerful compared to voters in northern India. And I started wondering why that was. And as I sort of dug deeper and deeper into why it is that, you know, voters in southern India happen to have about 40% greater weightage uh, for their votes compared to voters in northern India, uh, the entire sort of, you know, uh, the, the divergence between the states in terms of development metrics, the you know, voting impact, all of that came to the fore. And 10 years later, we have this book. So that's how I started. Okay. You started the book by talking about a child born in the South versus the North. Can you give the audience more information about a child born today and what they would experience based on where they live? Sure. So uh, a child born in southern India is generally sort of, you know, if you compare the infant mortality rate, the maternal mortality rate, uh, as in how likely is the child's uh, mother to die in the first year of birth, uh, under five mortality rate, the child's nutritional status, the child's uh, probability of going to school, the child's probability of staying in school, the child's probability of going on to college, and then going on to some kind of a job that is not agricultural labor. All of that in southern India is in some way, shape or form comparable to what is uh, OECD countries, developed countries. Whereas in northern India, it's still very much all these metrics are very much comparable to kind of sub-Saharan Africa. 
right? And, and, and within the same federal union, we have such stark differences. And that is sort of the thrust of the book, right? Like, uh, for instance, the state of Kerala, uh, which is in the uh, uh, southwestern corner of India, has an infant mortality rate of about six, which is the same as that of the United States. The, and Kerala happens to be the best performing state in India. Um, the state of Madhya Pradesh, which is in uh, central, not central India, happens to have an infant mortality rate of 48, which happens to be that of uh, comparable to Afghanistan and Niger, right? Um, so it, it, within one country, when you have both the United States and Afghanistan, uh, it, it practically becomes impossible for you to sort of run the health uh, systems of any country which has both these sets of societies and, and this is true for education this is true for agriculture this is true for like sort of every other sort of uh, development metric that you can consider and, and 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 as I started looking more and more it became obvious that we sort of cannot run this country as a one-size-fits-all policy apparatus and, and and that's the thrust of the book why is the south doing better than the North in India. Right. So um, there, there are multi-various reasons for it. And, and uh, uh, you know, uh, historians and economists and anthropologists sort of, and political scientists have sort of given various theories, right? To start with, uh, a, a common uh, theory that is put forward is that Southern India, and we need to understand the history a little bit, right, to understand this, which is that Southern India in general is not Hindi speaking, they're linguistically distinct, which is to say that each state speaks its own language in Southern India, but none of them are Hindi, uh, whereas much of uh, Central and Northern India speak either Hindi or one of the dialects uh, associated with Hindi. So there is what is called a subnationalism associated in much of the Southern states, which historically, uh, and, and a lot of historic movements, political movements in many of these states uh, were based on linguistic identity. And uh, a lot of historians and anthropologists have sort of uh, attributed a sense of subnationalism based on linguistic identity going back a century or more, uh, which which sort of made, you know, uh, 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 all of these societies come together to think of public policy as sort of, you know, the, the, the movement sort of resulted in a consolidation of their linguistic identity, which then translated into public policy being seen as a public good. And they contrast this with northern India, wherein because they don't have the sense of subnationalism and they sort of see themselves as Indians first, uh, the, the problem then becomes that they view public policy in many of these northern Indian states as through the prism of caste, community, religion, etc. And, 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 and therefore, when public policy becomes uh, viewed through the uh, sort of prism of, of, of zero-sum game, it never ever translates into good public policy, right? So, in other words, if, this, if, if members of a society think of their society is my society and they think that children in their society need to go to school because of which they are willing to pay higher taxes and, and, and you know, sacrifice a little bit for uh, the overall betterment of society. Good. Uh, if the opposite of that happens, which is sort of what happens in northern India, uh, you know, it, it results in a vicious cycle downward where no community or a uh, caste group or religious group sort of sees public policy as a public good, then they sort of seek more for themselves, which sort of descends into some kind of a zero-sum game. Now, you talk about life expectancy 
can you give us some information about the differences in life expectancy, South versus North? Sure. So in 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 uh, in northern India, the life expectancy is often uh, again comparable to sub-Saharan Africa. It's generally about sixty years of age. In uh, the state of Kerala, for instance, it's about seventy six, seventy seven, which is comparable to Argentina, upper middle income countries in general. Right. Uh, again, we, we we have to understand that India in general is a developing society and therefore uh, you, you cannot compare it to let's say western europe or the united states uh, in most metrics but in certain metrics such as infant mortality rate it is comparable to the united states in certain other metrics such as overall life expectancy uh, you know uh, the southern state of kerala is comparable to argentina this my own home state of tamil nadu is again comparable to sort of upper middle income countries like thailand uh, uh, that of kerala is about 76 77 like i told you whereas that in the uh, the indo gangetic plains which is northern india not, uh, the central and northern parts of india they have the life expectancy is about 60 and the tragedy is that the reason why there is low life expectancy there is that a lot of children die. A lot of children die in the first year of their birth, which results in a, uh, which, which is, the, you know, we've already seen that there is a high infant mortality rate and children die under five because of very preventable diseases, tropical diseases like, uh, you know, dysentery and so on and so forth, which all we need is sort of enough of a robust presence of a public health system with basic health care. And, you know, the absence of that is resulting in a extreme high mortality of under five, uh, uh, you know, children under five dying in, in, in many of those uh, states, which is resulting in sort of such a steep drop in their, uh, you know, overall life expectancy. You talk about giving birth to a child successfully in India. Does it depend on where you live? Um, sir, can you repeat that? Yes, you talk about a woman giving birth to a child successfully in India. Does it depend on where the woman lives for that success? Yes. So, um, uh, so there are a couple of metrics associated with this. One is the maternal mortality, that is, how likely is the mother. Uh, to die during childbirth. Uh, two is, uh, you know, after childbirth, how likely is the child, uh, you know, to survive the first year, the fifth year, so on and so forth. In southern India, and if the child does survive, you know, how well is it to do in terms of nutrition, its ability to go to school, etc. right? So in southern India, because of a series of programs that the government, uh, various state governments have sort of undertaken, the... The, the, the mother is more likely to go and near 100% of all childbirths in southern India happen in a hospital or some facility that is equivalent, right? And the reason for this is that uh, state governments in southern India have, uh, you know, have had incentive programs for women to go into hospitals and not have uh, home deliveries with midwives. And they incentivize these women to go into hospitals with, uh, you know, cash incentives, for instance, a lot of uh, uh, incentives for uh, the child that is born. Uh, they also have a, a, a nursing staff that goes into every village and takes uh, keeps a record of all women who are of reproductive age and especially those who are pregnant and they sort of, you know, uh, uh, you see if they've uh, those pregnant women have antenatal and prenatal care and sufficient sort of medication in during the time of their pregnancy and make sure that these women get like proper medical attention during uh, childbirth and and this has gone on for about a generation the way in which 
the governments in southern india generally uh, looked after this was that you know they used to have rolling shields gold sort of rings and coins and chains as uh, incentives and rewards for the nurses who who did best in terms of their district uh, the, uh, the district administration got like some version of a rolling shield they uh, the nurses had high status in those villages because of you know these kind of incentive programs they they were relatively well paid so because of a series of efforts by the state governments in all of these uh, 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 states with incentive programs women were generally incentivized to go into a uh, proper hospital and have childbirth and have proper medical care before that and after childbirth the child was relatively well taken care of by sort of the state healthcare system in northern india that has unfortunately not been true for much of the last generation they're starting to do that uh, because the union government is sort of you know uh, has has copied some of these uh, programs from southern india and sort of uh, try to uh, sort of force fit that into northern india but it's still uh, you know in, in in its infancy so to speak in terms of the program implementation you talk about education uh you also talk about the population that's largely illiterate can you tell the audience about that right so uh <clears throat> india like if you uh, just to give you a couple of metrics to sort of state the scope of the problem uh you know some states in india particularly northern india like uh, the state of bihar or in uttar pradesh uh you know teen illiteracy that is uh, you know uh, uh, the, the the literacy uh, the, the inability of children between rather young adults between the ages of 15 and 24 those who should have been in school in the last decade is often as high as 30% or 35% right and and it's an unacceptably high number and whereas if you travel south that number practically goes down to zero right um and and the reason for this is that the gross enrollment ratio of uh, uh, children and uh, young adults in schools and colleges and you see the improvement thereof and the incentive programs that the, again much like in health uh, the southern state had a series of incentive programs to get kids into school in southern india and one of the most successful example of that was what was a midday meal scheme which is that you know because there was grinding poverty about a generation or two ago uh, what some of the southern states did was that they offered free meals in schools so that parents who couldn't afford to feed their children <laughs> sent children to school to eat primarily if not to study and they sort of stayed back and studied and because of that the gross enrollment ratio of all the southern states sort of significantly went up over the last generation generation and a half and because of that what you have is you know uh, uh, the uh, the gross enrollment ratio at the uh, higher secondary level which is uh, you know what is equivalent to high school is about 84% in my home state of uh, uh, um uh, tamil nadu it is about 30% in the state of bihar it's 29 to be precise in the state of bihar in northern india right and 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 this disparity again just like we saw in health in the infant mortality rate like you know 84% to uh, about 29% is it, 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 it's such widely disparate states in the same union which is what is causing a lot of friction now but the reason for that is that a generation ago states in southern india you know had strong interventions at the local level to achieve this now you talk about one major problem keeping children in school why is that such a problem in one area of india versus another right um so 
India has always had, um, you know, a, a, a low enrollment ratio of children in school. There, there are various reasons. And this, en- uh, this uh, low enrollment ratio goes even lower in the case of girl children, right? And, and the reason for that is, again, multivarious. There is one. Uh, research has shown that access to menstrual hygiene is a very important factor. Girls who sort of uh, are of that age tend to drop out at greater rates and therefore the southern states have shown that giving access to free menstrual products in school results in a lower dropout rate, for example. Two, uh, access to, you know, uh, the, the, the threat of sexual violence and uh, uh, the ability of the government to sort of provide security services and make sure that there is a low crime rate is again a predictor of, uh, you know, dropout rates of girl children. Again, uh, a secure environment results in better enrollment of girl children in school. Three, like we have discussed, like security, uh, nutritional security, and, and uh, seeing the school as a venue for nutritional security is often another area uh, which results in a greater enrollment. Uh, four, like uh, uh, sort of not focusing so much on learning outcomes, but focusing on input metrics and making sure that the gates of the school are open to any uh, anyone and everyone who wants to come in, as opposed to focusing on learning outcomes uh, uh, is, again, another factor because it's been proven that um, a failure in a grade is the greatest predictor of a child dropping out of school, right? And if you sort of invert your policy to make sure that children are in school, regardless of what their learning outcomes are, uh, that results in greater uh, sort of enrollment ratio. The corollary of that question, of course, is isn't the purpose of school uh, to make sure that children are in fact learning? The answer is, is yes. But the question is, would you rather have a child drop out and have such low enrollment ratios as 29% or would you rather have it as high as 84% and then worry about learning outcomes, right? And these are state level interventions that state governments need to think and worry about. Now, you talk about the value of education. Tell us more about the value of education in India as a whole. Right. Uh, if, if, if we have... The entire disparity in the last couple of generations that has happened in uh, uh, between the southern and northern states in India can be almost entirely attributed to education, right? And particularly education of the girl child. And the reason for that is many of India's problems, uh, uh, you know, uh, can be uh, sort of uh, attributed to higher fertility rates. That is, uh, you know, women having uh, children at much higher than replacement level in what is central and northern India. And if you look at the data, it is very clear and very obvious, which is that the more the number of years of education a, 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 a woman has, uh, the fewer number of children that she has because she has greater control over uh, her own reproductive uh, uh, cycle, right? Uh, and and that, uh, that is sort of a very, very important metric. The second thing is that uh, 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 higher um, enrollment of uh, girl children in schools and in colleges in states such as Tamil Nadu has actually increased the female labor force participation in the uh, economy, which has then resulted in a couple of things. One is these uh, women who come into the labor force are moving, uh, are uh, working in jobs that are in manufacturing or in services and are not working in traditional agricultural labor. And because of the nature of the jobs that they do, they generally, you know, these are better paying jobs because of which those states have generally done better than northern states. Right? 
And, and uh, the knock-on effects of education, again, in areas such as health, is that a, a woman who has had a you know, greater a, a number of years of schooling or has gone to college typically also has uh, the probability of either she or her child dying during childbirth is you know far far lower compared to a woman who hasn't had the luxury of uh, formal education right and and then what happens is that the children born to such uh, women who have had longer years of schooling or uh, go on to actually get even greater number of years of schooling themselves and have even fewer children and go on to have even better jobs, so on and so forth. So it's a it's a virtuous cycle, so to speak, if the woman has had greater years of uh, schooling uh, and preferably some amount of college. And the opposite is true if you know, uh, the, 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 the girl child is not sent to school and none of these knock-on effects are true. And if, if we do have, in a poor country, if we do have, uh, you know, high fertility rates, the government's ability to build more number of schools, more number of hospitals, uh, you know, uh, provide for security, all of that again becomes a problem, right? So education sort of is a wonderful way to uh, make things that work even better and the absence of that makes things a lot worse. Now, you talk about another indicator of uh, quality of life, the economy. Tell us about work in uh, the southern part of India versus the northern part. What type of jobs do people have? Right. Um, uh, in fact, I cite this data, which is that uh, the total number of factories in uh, my home state of Tamil Nadu, which is in the southeastern corner of India, is about 38 to 39,000. And this is a state of about uh, 70 million people, right? And it, uh, the the, the number of factories in the states of uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, Rajasthan, Chhattisgarh, uh, uh, Jharkhand, these are six or seven states in central and northern India, which together have a population of about 525 million people. If, if, if it were a country, it would be the second most populous country in the world, right? It is that populous. And the total number of factories in all those states of about 525 million people put together is less than the total number of factories in my home state of Tamil Nadu, which happens to have the greatest number of factories, right? And and the and and what and this obviously means an obvious uh, uh, knock-on effect, which is that if you're born and raised in the state of Tamil Nadu, you're and given that the state also sort of has a relatively high enrollment ratio of children in its schooling system, what happens is that your probability of finding a job in one of these factories or a services um, uh, service sector job is much, much higher. And, and the way in which we measure this is the, the contribution of agriculture to, these, uh, to the overall state's economy in the southern states is minuscule, even though they actually produce more grain. Right on a, on a per hectare basis, whereas in many of these northern states, what happens is that because there is uh, generally you know there are not many factories and uh, the uh, the uh, that the workforce isn't educated and the the you know not very healthy and they end up sort of looking at agriculture as an employment of last resort because there aren't any employment opportunities and. It, it, it's, it's again like a vicious cycle, right? Because there isn't a healthy and a, a, a well-educated workforce, 
the in, uh, incentive for industry to come up and set up factories is that much lesser. And because there aren't enough jobs, it, the vicious cycle continues and, you know, people then rely on agriculture even more. And if you look at the yields per hectare in terms of agriculture, in, in many of those uh, states in northern and central parts of India, the yields are you know, abysmal. They're, they're sometimes less than half of the global average in terms of yields per hectare. And yet, greater than 70% of their people are employed in agriculture, not because they want to, but because it is, like I said, the employment of last resort. Yes, you talk about unions in India. Tell us more about the unions in the southern part versus the northern part and how that's helping workers obtain jobs or benefit their lives right uh, so it's a uh, you know, uh, labor rights in India are a complicated subject and the ways in which, uh, uh, you know, uh, firstly, if you have to have a union, you have to have uh, some version of a manufacturing, uh, you know, uh, base for, for in the economy in order to unionize the workers. Uh, unfortunately, uh, 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 unionizing agricultural workers is, is, is not something that is common and because the land holdings are so small, the the, the likelihood of that happening is again very very slim and therefore the the unionizing if at all it happens happens largely in southern india and that has resulted in slightly higher wages if you so uh, if, uh, if you look at the wages of non farm work in uh, uh, central and northern India and compare them to southern India, southern India on a per, uh, generally has about two to three times higher wages compared to, uh, you know, non-farm uh, work in uh, uh, northern India. One of the reasons is that, you know, uh, they are uh, better educated. There are, you know, uh, factories of a slightly higher uh, end which produce uh, you know, uh, uh, goods of a uh, higher value, and you could argue that is one reason, but it is also true that unionizing its labor has resulted in higher wages. Now, you, you call this chapter India's wicked problem, population. Tell us about the wicked problem. Right. Um, so, India uh, in, in the 1970s, uh, had a particular, uh, you know, uh, there was threat of famine. It, 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 uh, you know, it, it depended on a lot of foreign aid for everyday sustenance in terms of its food security. And therefore, the government in its wisdom decided that population control was to be a, pop, a policy of national importance. Right? And so what it did was that, you know, it, it, it sort of came up with several schemes to, quote unquote, control population. We don't use that language anymore, but in the 1970s, that was the language used, control of population, right? And uh, in fact, uh, the uh, Americans sort of uh, made a lot of uh, uh, investment in this area because the prevailing wisdom during Cold War was that uh, uh, high poverty with high population growth was the biggest predictor of spread of communism, right? And, and, and that also had a, a sort of a role to play. So what the government did was that, you know, it, 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 it it, it wanted, uh, you know, uh, all states to control population. And because of that, it had a series of schemes. And as a sort of a, a the other side of the coin, what it did was that it basically uh, decided to sort of freeze the number of members of parliament that each state sends to 
the national parliament, right? So uh, uh, now, what happened was that while we have that uh, part aside, what happened in the southern states was that, like we've already seen, because girls went to school in much greater numbers, they had much fewer children of their own, because of which the overall fertility rate of southern India in general has fallen far, uh, below replacement rate for almost a generation now. As a consequence, my home state of Tamil Nadu is set to experience negative population growth in the coming decade of 2031 to 41. It's true for my neighboring state of Kerala as well. Most states in southern India are set, have sort of stabilized their population already and are set to experience negative population growth in the sort of coming decades. Whereas much of northern India is still have uh, it, it still has um, above replacement fertility rates and their population is still growing quite a bit. And if you look between the years of 1971 and 2011, the two sort of, uh, we don't yet have data for 2021 census because that census got stopped because of COVID and that hasn't happened. So the last census data which we have in India is 2011. So in these 40 years of time between 1971 and 2011, uh, the overall rate of population growth in the southern state of Kerala, for instance, was 56%. The, in the same 40 years, the northern state of Rajasthan had a population growth of 166%. Right, and there's this huge divergence, therefore, between southern India and northern India in terms of their population growth in the last 40 years, which is, you know, in some way a direct result of the government asking states to control their population and one set of states actually doing it by sending girls to school and the other set of states not doing it by not sending their girls to school. And the result of that is a very tricky situation and that is what I refer to as the wicked problem which is that because we froze our, the number of members of parliament that you know, each state sends to a national parliament in, in the 70s, it is set to expire in 2026. And now when we redraw our uh, boundaries of constituencies and reallocate the num members of parliament to each state according to the latest census data, what is going to happen is that southern states, because they... Uh, you know, have achieved population stability and in fact are, are expected to experience decline in population are, expect, uh, are at the risk of losing representation, political representation in parliament, whereas the opposite is true for northern India. In other words, we are punishing success in terms of, you know, uh, sending girls to school and rewarding failure, which is, you know, uh, which is the opposite, which is that, you know, the reason why population in northern India is high is basically because of low enrollment ratio of girl children in school, right? And, and we are rewarding that failure. And this uh, moral hazard in, in, in policy is what is India's wicked problem at the moment. Now, once a person reads your book, what is the message you want that person to lead with once they read your book? Right. Um, so uh, the first two thirds of the book, I hope, you know, it's, it's very India focused and that the, the, the point I want to make there is that uh, uh, India ha is the divergence of India, particularly through population, but also in, in terms of other policy outcomes is in the extreme. One set of states have OECD levels of uh, metrics. Another set of states have sub-Saharan Africa level of metrics. And yet the union government, the federal government sort of 
seeks to increasingly centralize its policy making and and apply the same policy to these two and that becomes an impossible ask and this is not specific to india india is an extreme case but most large federal unions around the world uh, it could be china it could be the united states it could be germany it could be brazil most large uh, uh, federal unions have some version of this problem and how do we solve that problem is the fundamental uh, sort of question that i asked in the last third of the book and i i also want to add this other little uh, piece here before we move on there which is that in all the other large federal unions that i mentioned the difference between india and them is that population growth for instance consider the united states where uh, you know historically uh, people have migrated from what is middle america to uh, the the coastal states because of, because they are the economic power centers because of which their populations have sort of grown and they also are economically more powerful right whereas in and this is true for germany it is true for china so on and so forth except in india what happens is that the economically more uh, sort of uh, the economic engines of the country are happen to be states with reducing population whereas population growth happens in states which are generally poor backward and the reason for population growth is not internal migration unlike though in those other countries but instead higher fertility rate because we don't send enough girls to school right and 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 what do you do in a large federal union when there is such a conundrum and the last third of my book hopefully proposes a solution but if if you were to ask me what do i want people to take away from this uh, book is that how do you manage a diverse large federal union and, and you know uh, thoughts thereof i hope i hope that's the message that people take from the book well i've taken up a lot of your time can you tell us the next project you'll be working on uh so i I'm a data scientist of uh, like I told you earlier and you know I am hoping that this book does its job of informing policy makers of the difficult choices that India has and I'm going quietly back to my job for a little bit and then hopefully you know I will come back and think about how well they've implemented you know thoughts I had and and look at hopefully formalizing the solution that I propose probably in a academic work sometime in the future Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you.